Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Technology for managing diabetes has continued to expand with continuous glucose monitors or CGMs gaining an increased amount of interest from the public and medical communities. Current diabetes guidelines recommend robust education, training, and support for those prescribing and utilizing CGMs in their practice. But many of us may not be comfortable with this topic. Joining us today is Dr. Kate Neverman to provide a comprehensive overview of CGMs and how to use glycemic data from CGM reports to optimize patient care. So my three learning objectives for you all today to gain from this presentation are to identify three continuous glucose monitors approved by the FDA, describe the difference between glucose management indicator and hemoglobin A1C, and then discuss how to interpret glycemic data using an ambulatory glycemic profile report. So first let's talk about what a continuous glucose monitor is, or a CGM as I'll refer to it throughout this presentation. It's exactly how it sounds. It's a device which measures blood glucose continuously throughout the day. The goal of uh, this device is to make monitoring blood glucose easier for those requiring rigorous glucose checking regimens and making diabetes ultimately easier to manage. It's also a very helpful tool for clinicians managing diabetes too, as I hope you'll gain throughout this presentation. So technology for diabetes management has come a long way over the last 100 years and has really expanded over the last decade or so. Taking a step back in time, back to 1925, when Benedict's solution, which was the first reagent for detecting glucose in the urine, came about at home. The solution showed the patient's glucose level based on the color observed. Then in the 1970s, we have the first professional glucometer that was developed by the Ames Company, and this was exclusively used by healthcare providers in offices. Then in 1981, we have the first personal glucometer, or the glucometer that patients can now be using at home. Today, there's over 80 different glucometers available on the market. So then getting into what our discussion about today is, is CGMs. So in 1999, this was when the first professional CGM came about, which again, could only be used exclusively by healthcare providers. Patients were blinded to glucose data for about three days, and then they came into the office to get their glucose downloaded for the healthcare provider to interpret it. Today, professional CGMs can be used blinded for seven to 14 days. Then in 2004, we finally have our first personal CGM, which again can be used at home by patients. Although Mayo Clinic has not had a high, has been highly involved with CGMs and glucometers in this development, they are joining in on the next wave of technology, which is the artificial pancreas. Functioning like a biological pancreas, the artificial pancreas uses an abdominal patch to continuously measure blood glucose. Then, using a pager-sized insulin pump, it will read those readings to be able to deliver exactly the right amount of insulin at exactly the right time. The artificial pancreas will be able to free patients 
from daily finger sticks, blood glucose reads, and daily shots. Again, will also help with minimizing patient decision making. However, we're not quite there yet with technology, so it is still important for us to know how CGM data is utilized because knowing how to use it is definitely of the utmost importance. In 2018, it was estimated that 34.2 million people in the United States had diabetes, which is about 10% of the population. Although it's unknown how many of these patients have uncontrolled diabetes, we do know uncontrolled diabetes leads to complications, such as chronic kidney disease, diabetic retinopathy, diabetic neuropathy, and cardiovascular disease, which all can ultimately lead to death. CGMs are a very useful tool for reducing these diabetes complications by uh, maintaining and reducing A1C, by decreasing hypoglycemic events, and by improving hyperglycemia. CGMs have also been becoming more utilized over the past decade or so. Back in 2011, only 6% of type 1 diabetics used a CGM. In 2018, that number had already increased to 38%. This year, we actually expect CGM use to increase by 38% and even further in the years to come. And that's primarily driven by type 2 diabetics. So how is a CGM then different than our standard glucose monitoring with finger sticks or that four times a day testing? So take for example, we have a patient that monitors their blood sugar four times a day and you see these blood sugar values in clinic for a day. We notice that they're not experiencing any hypoglycemia or any values less than 70 and they're not experiencing any hyperglycemia or any values greater than 180. So we'd think, oh, you know, we're monitoring this patient's diabetes pretty good. However, if we were to put a CGM on this patient, we might actually find out that they're having hypoglycemia overnight and hyperglycemia after breakfast, which would indicate that there are some adjustments we could be using for these patients. Looking at the data for self-monitoring blood glucose or that four times a day finger stick, which is the usual care, versus CGMs, all of the studies I'll talk about on this slide are randomized clinical trials. So starting with Beck et al., these looked at adults with type 1 diabetes on multiple daily doses of insulin. Their baseline A1C was 8.6%, and after a duration of 24 weeks, they found that their A1C was reduced by 1% with CGM versus usual care, which only found an A1C reduction of 0.4%. Then we have Riddlesworth. Um, which at all, which also looked at that same exact study, but they focused on the hypoglycemic, hypoglycemic events with a CGM. And they did find that there, were, there was a reduction with hypoglycemic events compared to usual care, which did not show any difference. Then Lind et al. further found that, again, patients with type 1 diabetes on multiple daily doses of insulin, again, had a difference in A1C, um, with a CGM and it was reduced by about 0.4%. Then further, Beck et al. again looked at patients with diabetes, but this time type 2 diabetes on multiple daily doses of insulin. Again, baseline A1C was 8.5% and they found after 24 weeks that there was also a reduction with CGM use compared to our usual care. Further, Earhart et al looked at not only type 2 diabetics, but type 2 diabetics not on prandial insulin or mealtime insulin. And they actually had 
uh, half of the population that they studied were only on oral antihyperglycemic agents alone. They found that after 52 weeks of using a continuous glucose monitor for two weeks on, one week off, compared to usual care, that there was also a reduction in A1C with CGM. So what about for hospital use? Well, the Diabetes Technology Society in 2017 came out with a consensus statement on inpatient CGM use. They reviewed evidence of CGMs in intensive care units, non-intensive care units, and transitioning outpatient. The studies that they looked at were pretty limited, and it is worth noting that the studies reviewed included very few glucose values in the hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic extremes. These, what we know is if the more time patients spend in the hypoglycemic range, the less accurate the sensor can be. But they did find from these limited studies that CGMs could potentially, uh, in hospitals, could potentially improve patient outcomes. However, there are some concerns regarding the accuracy, accuracy of CGMs, not only because of the hypoglycemic ranges, but because of impaired tissue perfusion, measurement lag time with sensors, need for regular calibration, and drug device interactions, which we'll talk about later in this presentation. The Diabetes Technology Society therefore concluded that well-powered studies are really needed to examine outcomes and accuracy with these devices. What's pretty cool is Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida is currently doing some research with CGM use in the non-ICU hospital setting. They are currently looking at determining if patients using their own CGM have adequate accuracy by comparing the glycemic data from the report compared to the point-of-care um, capillary glucose values that they're getting in the hospital. Further, they're also determining if the CGM alerts would prevent hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia from occurring. Like I've said before, too, is current diabetes guidelines recommend having these robust diabetes education, training, and support for these kinds of devices if we're going to utilize them in our practice. So that's why we're talking about these today. So that brings us to our first learning objective, which is to identify three continuous glucose monitors approved by the FDA. As I mentioned previously, there are both professional and personal CGMs, so I'm just going to highlight a few of those differences here. A professional CGM is something that's owned by the healthcare center, while a personal CGM is owned by the user or by the patient. A professional CGM is placed in, on in a, in a provider's office, while a personal CGM is placed on at a patient's home. A professional CGM does not have access, but patients do not have access to the glucose values while wearing the device, so they must still use finger sticks. On the other hand, personal CGMs, patients do have access to the glucose results while wearing the device, so minimal finger sticks are required. For professional CGMs, they are billed through medical insurance, while personal CGMs could be medical or they could be pharmacy insurance, depending on uh, the patient's insurance formulary. But for today's purposes, I'm just going to be focusing on a personal CGM. So there's three main components to a personal CGM, which include a sensor, a transmitter, and a receiver or smart device. The sensor is inserted under the skin to measure interstitial glucose levels. These are updated every five minutes for CGMs, um, some even being able to update every minute getting an updated glucose value. 
Then we have the transmitter, which connects the sensor to the receiver or smart device to send real-time glucose readings wirelessly through Bluetooth to a receiver or smart device. Um, it is worth noting that sensors and transmitters can either be separate components or they can be components that are together. They also cannot be used in um, an MRI or x-rays or anything like that because it can affect the technology. And then we have the receiver or smart device. So the, rece the receiver or smart device receives glucose data from the transmitter through Bluetooth and displays the current levels, historical trends, and even predictive arrows to show the direction the glucose is headed. With personal CGMs, there are two main categories that they can be broken down into for personal CGMs. They are real-time CGMs and there's intermittently scanned CGMs. The real-time CGMs automatically transmit data to the receiver or smart device, while the intermittently scanned CGMs require a swipe of the receiver or smart device to retrieve the data over the sensor. These were previously referred to as flash CGMs as well. Real-time CGMs do have the benefit of being able to be linked to insulin pumps at this time as well. So with real-time CGMs, the ones I'll be talking about today are all the ones that are FDA approved um, for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes are uh, Dexcom G6, Guardian Connect System, and then Eversense. And the intermittently scanned CGMs are our Freestyle Libres, both a 14-day and the Freestyle Libre 2. Again, those are also approved for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So the first talking about the Dexcom G6. So this is a picture on the right if you're not familiar with what a Dexcom G6 sensor and transmitter looks like. This would be what would be on the patient. The age approved for this device is two years or older. The wear length is 10 days. There are no required finger stick calibrations. And the location is either the abdomen for adults or the abdomen and buttocks for pediatric patients. These are where it's FDA approved for. Then we have a warm-up time, which the warm-up time is the amount of time it takes the sensor to calibrate after it's been placed under the patient's skin to make sure that the device will actually be accurate. During this period of time, patients are not able to see their uh, glucose values through the CGM, so they must finger stick themselves if going to like eat or exercise or something like that. Additional features to the Dexcom include a high-low alarm, to alert patients when they're either trending high or trending low for their blood sugars. The display device for this can either be a receiver or a smart device, and this Dex, the Dexcom G6 currently connects with the Tandem T-Slim X2 insulin pump. Next we have the Guardian Connect system. Again, sensor transmitter is what it looks like on the right. Age approved is 14 to 75 years old. The wear length is seven days, and it does require two finger stick calibrations every day, so every 12 hours, to make sure that the device is still accurate. The location is either the abdomen or the posterior upper arm, and just like the Dexcom, the warm-up time is two hours. Additionally, like the Dexcom, it does have a high alarm feature, um, but unlike the Dexcom, it only has a display device on the smart, on your, on your smartphone. Uh, additionally, instead of connecting with the Tandem insulin pump, it does connect with some Medtronic insulin pumps, as well as the InPen, which you can look into further um, if you'd like. Then we have Eversense, which this one is age-approved for 18 years or older. This one's a little bit different because, as you can see, the wear length is 90 days. 
and that's because it's the first implantable CGM. It's basically a, a pill-side sensor that is placed in the posterior upper arm in a provider's office. And this is actually the only CGM that's approved to be used during an MRI as well. Like the Guardian Connect system, you do have to do two required finger stick calibrations every day. Um, and the warm-up time is 24 hours, so a whole day that the patient would have to do finger sticks all day. Again, it also has a high-low alarm, and the display is only a smart device at this time. And then I just don't want to note, too, that the transmitter piece of this, sense of this system um, is something that you would put on every single day over that back of the arm. Then we get into the intermittently scanned CGMs, so the Freestyle Libres. Again, picture of what it looks like on the right. They look identical, so you'll see that on the next slide. But for the 14-day, it's approved for 18 years or older. The wear length is 14 days. There's actually no finger stick calibration even possible on these devices. Um, if a patient does have a low blood sugar reading with these, they must um, use a finger stick to make sure that they are actually low. The location for this is also, also the posterior upper arm, and then the warm-up time is only one hour. Another drawback to the 14-day is that there's no high-low alarm feature. So this is the first one we're talking about that does not have that alarm. It also is a CGM, like I said, that has to be scanned. So it has to be scanned at least every eight hours to save all the glycemic data. And the display device for this is either the receiver or a smart device. Then we have the Freestyle Libre 2. Like I said, looks very similar. But with this one, um, is age approved for greater for four years or older, and that's due be, to the fact that it now does have a high-low alarm, which is optional, um, but most patients that do use this um, do want to use the alarm. Again, still a 14-day wear length, no finger stick calibration possible, posterior upper arm, and a warm-up time of one hour. The display feature on this would either be a receiver or smart device, with the caveat being that the smart device at this time for the Freestyle Libre 2 is only approved by Apple. They're still in the process of getting that worked through for Android. Again, this one is intermittently scanned CGM, so you must scan every eight hours to save all the glycemic data. Um, with that being said, the high-low alarm features, um, it will alert the patient if they're going high or low, but it will not tell them what their blood sugar is. They will have to scan to be able to see that number. So this is just an overview of everything we kind of talked about of the characteristics of the FDA-approved CGMs. Um, I do want to point out two things on this slide, one of those being this non-adjunctive labeling. And the non-adjunctive labeling is what allows the CGM to be used for insulin dosing and does not require a finger stick calibration. As you can see on here, the Guardian Connect system is the only one that does not have this FDA approval at this time. Additionally, I wanted to talk about drug interactions. So with these drug interactions, what do we do and what do they mean? Certain drugs with the CGM device can cause false high blood sugars and false low blood sugars to occur. So with the Dexcom G6 and the Guardian Connect system, both hydroxyurea at standard doses can cause false highs to occur. Additionally, acetaminophen can also cause false highs with the Dexcom G6 having to use higher than standard doses. So acetaminophen greater than one gram every six hours could cause a false high. 
And then with the Guardian Connect system, they don't actually have any of this in their labeling. Um, it's more dose dependent. So the more acetaminophen that's used, the more inaccurate you would expect the device to be. Then for the Eversense system, we have mannitol, um, either IV irrigation solution or uh, peritoneal dialysis solution at standard doses can cause false highs. And then tetracycline at standard doses can also cause false lows. And then with the Freestyle Libre systems, both can cause false highs with vitamin C greater than 500 milligrams for, per dose. Can also cause a false high, and then false lows can occur with the 14-day system only with a salicylic acid of greater than 650 milligrams. With all of these drug CGM device interactions, we would recommend um, that you just don't use the CGM glucose values when using any of these medications um, and instead just finger stick yourself to make sure that blood sugar is what it is. So that brings us to assessment question number one and this will be the same patient we're following throughout all three assessment questions. So CM is a 66 year old male and is interested in starting on a CGM due to hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia issues. He prefers a device with a high low alarm feature, which does not require finger stick calibration. He has a past medical history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. His medication, medication list includes aspirin 81 milligrams daily, atorvastatin 40 milligrams daily, insulin aspart 10 units at breakfast, 8 units at lunch, and 10 units at dinner, insulin degladec 24 units daily, lisinopril hydrochlorothiazide, 20 per 25 milligrams daily, and metformin, 1,000 milligrams twice daily. The question is, which of the following is the best CGM option for CM? A, Eversense, B, Guardian Connect System, C, Freestyle Libre 14-day, or D, Dexcom G6. And with this, please respond using the Poll Everywhere app or polleverywhere.com um, slash mayorx or text MAYO RX to 22333. So the correct answer for this would be the Dexcom G6, and that would be due to Eversense and the Guardian Connect system, both requiring the finger stick calibration that the patient prefers not to have. And then they also want a high-low alarm, which the Eversense and the Guardian Connect system do have, but the Freestyle Libre 14-day does not. Only the Freestyle Libre 2 does. So Dexcom G6 doesn't have any required finger stick calibrations and does have the high-low alarm feature. The other things we need to think about when considering a CGM for a patient um, is a patient perspective of a CGM. So advantages of CGMs are showing the current glucose value and predicting the direction the glucose is headed or the rate of change. Additionally, it allows patients to see the glycemic patterns throughout the day and see any glycemic variability. They also have the ability to share glucose levels with a family member and the healthcare team if they want. So this can make remote monitoring of diabetes really easy for um, clinicians. And then if integrated with an insulin pump, uh, the CGM may be able to pause, or I guess not the the pump would be able to pause or adjust insulin delivery in response to the changes in glucose levels without a patient having to do anything on their insulin pump. There are, however, disadvantages to CGMs, 
with the biggest one being cost. Also, potentially having to require finger stick calibrations, which we know patients are trying to get away from having to do. They also need to remember to scan if they're using an intermittently scanned CGM. It can also be complicated to learn, so there's sometimes a lot of upfront um, overload of information and patients may just get too overwhelmed. Along with that, they can have alarm fatigue from maybe when first starting off on a CGM as they're getting things into goal range, um, may have the CGM going off a lot. Patients may also not like the constant presence of a sensor on or in their body, as well as skin irritation can occur with some of these products, depending on the patient. So talking a little bit more about CGM coverage barriers. So the preference for the CGM is really based on the type of insurance the patient has. For Medicare, this does require specific documentation. They must have a diabetes diagnosis. They must use insulin at least three times per day or use a continuous insulin pump. And then they must have an insulin regimen that requires frequent adjustments, which I would argue that every patient that's on insulin at least three times a day probably has some frequent adjustments that needs to happen based off of their diet, et cetera. In addition to this, the patient does have to be seen within the last six months for their diabetes by their healthcare provider in person in order to qualify. Um, and then after the CGM has been acquired by the patient, they do need to have inpatient or in-person office visits with their healthcare provider regarding their CGM use and diabetes medications. And then I do want to note that in mid-July of this past summer, Medicare did eliminate the requirement for four times a day testing to be able to get, a, get approved for a CGM. However, this has not taken place with every um, Medicare formulary yet, so that's just a caveat that hopefully in with time and maybe next year, that will go away. And then with Medicaid, it may require a prior authorization. Same with commercial insurance, could require a prior authorization, but it also could be covered by medical or pharmacy insurance. So again, making sure that patients are looking into that depending on what their coverage is. That brings us to learning objective number two. Describe the difference between glucose management indicator and hemoglobin A1C. So as we all know, the hemoglobin A1C or A1C lab value is the gold standard for assessing glucose control. The hemoglobin A1C is determined by this non-enzymatic attachment of a hexose molecule to the N-terminal amino acid of the hemoglobin molecule, as you can see in this picture below. The attachment of the hexose molecule occurs continually, continually over the entire lifespan of the erythrocyte or the red blood cell, which is approximately 8 to 12 weeks. Again, the, this is really dependent on blood glucose concentration and the duration of the exposure of the red blood cell to glucose for determining what the A1C is. And like I've mentioned before, the A1C is reflective of that 8 to 12 weeks. Um, it depends on the individual, and it does provide a much better indication of long-term glycemic control than blood or urinary blood glucose values. However, there are some caveats to A1C lab values as well. Like I said, they're affected by erythrocyte turnover, and we know there's plenty of things that can affect this, which include anemia, iron deficiency, liver disease, genetic factors, pregnancy, 
pulsponectomy, and polycythemia vera, which is a rare blood cancer. Unfortunately, A1C is unable to detect any acute shifts in, um, with glucose and is therefore blinded to any complications that could be occurring from either hyperglycemia or hypoglycemia. So what has been found is that there's now this glucose management indicator, or GMI, which is a new metric from the CGM reports. It provides an estimate of the A1C, of, it provides an estimate of the A1C based on average CGM glucose values over a period of at least 10 to 14 days. It is less influenced by the erythrocyte conditions because it is just a measure of glucose rather than what the hemoglobin, again, that attachment to the glucose. GMI and the estimated A1C are similar. Although they use different formulas, the percent is about equivalent. So, for example, in this table, you can see the CGM-derived average glucose of 100 would equal a GMI of 5.7% which is equivalent to an estimated A1C of also 5.7%. So that brings us back to CM. CM returns to the clinic after using the Dexcom G6 CGM for 14 days. His GMI on his report is 7%. What is his estimated A1C? Is it 6.5%, 7%, 7.5%, or that last one is 8%? Again, you can respond using the app or pull ev.com slash mayorx or you can text mayorx to 22333. And I see some answers changing on there with yes, uh, the correct answer for this would be 7% as the estimated A1C because we know GMI and the estimated A1C are equivalent. So a 7% GMI would equal a 7% estimated A1C. So that brings us to learning objective number three, discussing how to interpret glycemic data using an ambulatory glycemic profile or report. So how does GMI come up on these CGM reports? Well, every CGM has a portal where glucose data can be stored, and this data stored can be used to create an ambulatory glucose profile, which we have come to know and love in a, in a standardized format, which looks similar to this format, which we'll dive into on the coming slides. The AGP really provides the clinician with more information to adjust diabetes medication regimens. And the AGP can be, um, you can get reports on this every seven days, every 14 days, over 30 days, or even over 90 days to get your most accurate estimated A1C. So going a little bit into this report, first looking at the glucose statistics because I know these reports can sometimes be a little overwhelming. Looking at that first uh, box there that's highlighted in blue, this will show you what days the CGM is talking about and how many days um, the CGM was act or CGM uh, report is looking at. Then further we look at the percent time the CGM is active, which this tells you how, um, again, how often the CGM is being utilized. Ideally, we would want this number to be as close to 100% as possible, so that way we're not missing out on any glucose values. Then we have our average glucose and our GMI, or estimated A1C. Then that next box is the coefficient of variation, and then the standard deviation. The glycemic variability 
is really a measure of the extremes in glucose. So we would like this number to be as small as possible so we're not having huge fluctuations in our blood sugar, either having hyperglycemia or hypoglycemia. Then on the right, we have this wonderful little bar graph here with the time in ranges. So these can be divided further into three different components, a time above range or values greater than 180, which is seen in yellow, and then greater than 250, which is seen in orange. And then we have the time in range with blood glucose values, ideally between 70 to 180. And then finally, we have the time below range, which um, is less than 70 or less than 54 milligrams per deciliter for those having hypoglycemia, um, and that would be in red. Then the next part of the report looks at the ambulatory glucose profile. So this is really all of those 14 days matched into one 24-hour period. What we want to see on this graph is most of our blood sugars between the 70 to 180 range, so in that gray zone. Ideally, would want that as flat as possible in the gray zone. So the orange line on this graph shows our average blood sugar throughout the day um, based over the last 14 days. Then within the blue lines, that's about 50% of our, that is 50% of our glucose values. And then the uh, green dotted lines are the, are 90% of our values are within that range. So again, wanting to make sure that this is as flat as possible and within that gray zone. Then further, we can look at the daily glucose report. So this shows every single day over the last 14 days um, that are on the report. Again, that gray zone is the um, target range of 70 to 180, and the orange line is our average blood sugars throughout the day. This can really be helpful for figuring out um, once we have figured out what times of day something is going on, maybe we can see if there's any outliers over these last 14 days or if there's trends, you know, like maybe every Saturday night they go out drinking or something like that, and we can maybe have a discussion with patients about that. So looking at the AGP report then and figuring out what are our glycemic goals. So for time in range, which again is that glucose value between 70 to 180, the green on the bar graph, we would like that to be greater than 70%. And that's because a time and range of about 70% is correlated with an A1C of about 7%. Then we want the time below range or any of our hypoglycemic values to be less than 4% on this report, and that would be due to minimize um, any microvascular complications from diabetes. Again, with the percent time CGM is active, we'd like this to be at least active 70% of the time, but again, ideally, if we could get that closer to 100% to make sure we're not missing anything, that's ideal. And then with a coefficient of variation, we would like to minimize that variability again, um, so the goal for this would be less than 36%. So when looking at these reports, again, can be kind of overwhelming on what should we focus on. So really coming up with a standardized approach to how you look at these AGP reports is important. So the first thing I would recommend doing is reviewing the overall glycemic status, looking at their GMI, average glucose, check the percent time the CGM is active because we know the more blood sugar values we have, the more data we can go off of as well. 
Then we want to review the time below range, time in range, and time above range statistics, first focusing in on hypoglycemia or the type below range and making sure that that's less than 4%. Then we'll want to target hyperglycemia or the time above range to minimize that. Next, we'll review the 24-hour glucose profile to identify the time and magnitude of each problem, problem identified, further using the daily glucose profile to determine if there's any outliers or any trends that we should be aware of. So that brings us to assessment question number three, back to CM. He's a 66-year-old male presenting to the clinic again for diabetes management. He is still using the Dexcom G6 CGM. His current antihyperglycemic agents include insulin aspart, 10 units at breakfast, 8 units at lunch, and 10 units at dinner, the insulin Degladec, 24 units daily, and then metformin, 1,000 milligrams twice daily. Here is his AGP report. So looking at this, I'm just going to read off some things for you. So glucose statistics, the percent time the CGM is active is 98.8%. The average glucose is 158 with the GMI of 7.1%. The coefficient of variation is 28.4%. And then looking at the time in ranges, we have 73.5% of the time he's in that target range of 70 to 180, 25.7% high, 3.2% very high, and then 0.9% low, and 0% time very low. And then you can see the ambulatory glucose profile um, as well, and can see where those average blood sugars are. So the question um, that I have is, based off of CM's AGP report, which of the following is the best option for improving his glycemic control? Is it A, increase insulin aspart to 11 units at breakfast, B, decrease insulin aspart to 9 units at dinner, C, increase insulin aspart to 11 units at dinner, or D, decrease insulin degladec to 22 units daily. And I'll go back to this just so you guys can review it again before answering. Again, it would be in increase the insulin aspart to 11 units at breakfast, decrease insulin aspart to 9 units at, bed, or at dinner, increase insulin aspart to 11 units at dinner, or decrease insulin degladec to 22 units daily. So for this one, I would say that the best option would be increasing the insulin aspart to 11 units at dinner. And we'll go into that a little bit further because um, sometimes reading these reports, uh, this is just my makeup of it, so it might not be perfect. So first looking at these reports, we first want to look at the average glucose or that GMI. Even though that patient is at, has an estimated A1C of 7.1%, we can still make improvements to this patient's life. Then we want to look at the percent time the CGM is active, pretty close to 100%, so that patient's doing pretty good. Then we'll look at the time in ranges. Again, the patient does have, the, looking at the time below range first, which it's not less than 4%, so doing pretty good there. But we know, and we, we know that the time in range, again, is greater than 70%, which is great, but if we could minimize some of those highs the patient is having, that would be ideal. So then we know they're experiencing some hyperglycemia, so when is that occurring? So looking at this, which again, a few of these probably could be right, I wouldn't say like that 
Um, but again, based off of my drawing, I'll tell you that they were eating breakfast at 5 a.m. So if they're eating breakfast at 5 a.m. and you're seeing a dip in their blood sugar, if we were to increase the insulin aspart to 11 units at breakfast, we could potentially be causing that patient to have hypoglycemia and making their blood sugar go down lower. However, some people might have thought that this was breakfast, so I understand. <laughs> um, then looking at the next option with decreasing insulin or increasing insulin at dinner time. So here's their dinner time. Um, if we were to decrease their insulin, we would expect more hyperglycemia to occur. But if we were to increase it, which I've already given away, that's the correct answer, um, we could potentially lower that average glucose. And the last one with decreasing insulin, degladec, I feel like you could argue that you could actually increase the, the insulin degladec to lower the um, average glucose rather than if you decreased it, we would expect more hyperglycemia to occur throughout the whole day. So in summary, the FDA-approved CGMs are the real-time CGMs, Dexcom G6, Eversense, and the Guardian Connect system. And then the intermittently scanned CGMs are the Freestyle Libre 14-day and the Freestyle Libre 2. We, also, we always want to make sure that we're considering patient factors when selecting a CGM for a patient. And then when utilizing an AGP report, we want to make sure that we're following a standardized process, reviewing the GMI and average glucose, checking the percent time the CGM is active, and then reviewing the time below range, time in range, and time above range statistics, focusing on the time below range or hypoglycemia first. And then lastly, reviewing the glucose profile to identify any times or magnitudes of the problem identified, figuring out any patterns. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.